Um, when I first moved to the USA, obviously kids can be cruel at times and it was difficult. I experienced some bullying, not knowing the language. I uh, would get asked a million questions that I didn't know how to say yes or no to. Um, I would just shake my head or not and would see the results of kids laughing. Um, I, for the first couple of months, just sat behind the teacher's desk with flashcards learning the vocabulary. So when a couple of months into moving to the USA, the opportunity was given to start this little basketball league called Little Dribblers. I, it was very evident that as soon as I got on the basketball court, those kids that were making fun of me no longer did because now they were looking at me differently because I could do something way better than they could. <laughs> Another season in the books, the podcast featuring current and former professional athletes. They come from all over the world, and many spent their college years studying and playing in the United States. We talk athletics, academics, and because life is so interesting, a little bit of everything else. My favorites, food, and cultural differences. I'm your host, Leslie Knight, 14-year vet in Europe's professional basketball leagues. I played one year in Switzerland, and I'm currently on my 13th year in Spain with the club Movistar Estudiantes in Spain's top women's league, La Liga Femenina Endesa. All right, it's about that time, so let's get to it! Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year to you all. I can't believe it's been a whole year since Edwin Jackson's interview. An interview I thoroughly enjoyed and would highly recommend if you haven't listened to it yet. Edwin is full of surprises, to say the least. I'm happy to say, however, that today's final interview of 2021 is right up there with Edwin's. Today's story is like none other so far. A little girl from Colombia moves to Texas with her family. She's made fun of at school, and she's seen as an outsider. Until that special day where she was given the opportunity to step on the basketball floor and hold a basketball in her hands. From that moment on, the rest is history. Erica Vilek has quite the story, and I'm so grateful she was willing to share it with me. It's a story of struggle, triumph, goals, dreams, heart-wrenching realities, perseverance, hard work, personal growth, reflection, and so much more. Life at its finest, truly. Enjoy this interview and Feliz Año Nuevo a todos. Erica Vilek, it has been so long. Um, I'm so glad this is working out and welcome to the podcast. How are you? What's going on? Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you. I'm so proud that you're still kicking butt and playing (laughs) basketball. It's amazing. Yeah, I don't know. I I never expected to be playing at 35, but here I am. Knock on wood, no no major injuries yet. So, hey, that's that is important important and when you can do it and as long as your body allows you to I think that it's a a privilege and an honor to do what we did well I can only see your face right now but I'm assuming you're still super fit ah I think that has been one of the most difficult things uh post 
being a professional athlete (laughs) is you thought that you were motivated until you removed the team and the coaches. And it has been a significant challenge for me. Um, The whole concept of being in shape to be healthy, it's it's taken me a lot of years to accept. Um, I, I fought with it. I got angry at the fact that now I had to stay healthy because um, <laughs> that was never something I had to worry about. You always right. worked out with a reason other than being healthy. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's very So true. no, I'm not as fit as you think. I, I definitely <laughs> put on some pounds, especially during the pandemic. Well, I think about the people that aren't athletes or that don't have a sport that they play every week. And I look at those people in the gym and I just think to myself, wow, you're motivated. Like, yes, that's impressive. And I hope that I'm able to be somewhat like that after this, because when you don't have somebody telling you what to do, when you don't have the option of saying, oh, I'm going to take a day off. um, You know, you have to be extremely self-motivated afterwards. Correct. And when there's no goals, you know, for so many years, I think I operated with trying to accomplish my next dream. Mm -hmm. And so that kept me going. But when you remove that, it was quickly evident that. I had no desire to want to be getting on a treadmill or an elliptical just because that's what my body needed. Right. Right. (laughs) And sometimes I don't know if I'm making excuses, but sometimes I think, oh my gosh, we've been through so much physically that like, just, just let me get away from it for a little bit. And then once I start missing it, then maybe I'll come back. (laughs) Yep. I agree. I'm still wrestling with it. I mean, I think I have a calendar that I put like stick figures to motivate me to keep doing something active. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it is difficult for sure. For me, it has been a challenge. Have you found some sort of like active, like dance or I don't know, some other sort of exercise that you like to do that's not lifting or basketball? Uh, I wish I could say I have, I haven't. Although Jillian Michaels DVD workout videos kick my butt and they are <laughs> what keep me in somewhat of a decent shape. Okay. So I have her yoga DVDs. I have some of her like uh, body workout um, and I kind of sometimes alternate. Yeah, so. that's funny you say that because I actually used to do some of her videos on YouTube when they were just like for free. And then yep. at some point, I think they kind of started getting away from that and then you had to pay or you had to buy the DVDs. But I know exactly yeah. who you're talking about. And those workouts were good. I mean, and you don't yeah. even necessarily need weights. You can just use your own right. body weight and it kicks your butt. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So that that's what keeps me somewhat uh, active. <laughs> good deal. Um, well, Erica, first question. I'm wondering, what do you think is your first sports memory when you think back to your childhood? Doesn't have well, to be about basketball, but what comes to mind? Um, so my mom was a, pro, a basketball player as well. So I, my first memory is watching her play. Um, I was at the gym somehow. Uh, I remember looking back at pictures and you can kind of vaguely remember being part um, of something she was doing, her team, uh, of practice, of games, traveling. So definitely with her first. That's pretty That cool. was back in Columbia, uh, South America, where I was born and grew up. Uh-huh. So your mom, I wonder how old she was when she retired from playing. So my mom um, had me when she was very young. So she came here as an exchange student to the United States, uh, returned back to Columbia. She found out she was pregnant with me. So she had me at age 18. Oh, 
but she actually got the opportunity after she had myself and my sister at the age of 24 to come to the USA to play in college. So she played with the Columbia national team and then came to the USA to play basketball. So it was in her twenties. And I think she played because she didn't know the language. They put her at a Juco college. Um, I want to say in Texas, North of Texas. So it's a little, little, little town called Clarendon, Texas. And she played there for two years. And after that, she was done. Okay. That's pretty cool that you got to see her play and remember, because I know for me, if I were to have kids now, I'd probably, you know, be hanging up my sneakers and they would never get a chance to see me play. And I think that's happening to a lot of athletes these days, because women are deciding to play longer unless they take a break in their career and have kids. But um, the fact that you were able to see her play and remember that uh, is pretty special, in my opinion. Yes, I agree. It, it definitely was something that for many years was the driving factor of me playing basketball and trying to accomplish dreams that she never got the opportunity to do. Sure. Well, and I think she was pretty ahead of her time because I was thinking about this today as, as I was coming home and now it's understandable and um, believable that, you know, people from all over the world, whether it's South America, Europe, Australia, they can get the opportunity and go to the United States to play college basketball. But, and it's because the world has gotten so much smaller too, and coaches are able to recruit thanks to, you know, uh, social media and just FaceTime and all these different things. But when you were growing up and when your mom was growing up, social media did not exist. And how in the world does a girl from Columbia get a chance to then go to the States and play in, we're talking like in the eighties, in the night. I mean, yep. Yep. So, uh, she got the opportunity to come when I think it was 1990, 1989, 1990, and it was by word of mouth. So one of her teammates had had the opportunity to come play. And she was talking to my mother was like, Hey, you still want to come play? Let me help you. And kind of word of mouth allowed that opportunity to present itself. Well, and she was a foreign exchange student. So, I mean, she must have come from a family with an outlook of like, hey, traveling is important. Other cultures are important. Maybe this would be a good opportunity for our daughter to go study abroad in Texas. Yep. Yep. Well, initially when she came as an exchange student, I think that she begged my grandfather for years to allow and pay for that trip. Um, And she ended up being an exchange student, I want to say in Michigan first, and then was only there a very short time before she realized she was pregnant with me and then had to. So she only got to experience that for, you know, the exchange student program for about a month or not even a month before she had to go back. So it was very difficult because my fought, my grandfather fought it, did not want her to do it. And then when he gave in, she only was able to do one month out of the year that was paid. So he was not a happy man when she returned to find out that she was pregnant with me. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. the rest is history, you know, then she got the yep. chance to go back and then you mm-hmm. followed in her footsteps. And um, so I was going to ask you if you came from a sports minded family and obviously the answer to that is yes. Yes. And my father was a great athlete as well. He played many sports, he played tennis, basketball, um, and they actually met my mom and dad met at a basketball court. So there was a basketball court in Columbia only where like the elite male athletes would play. And my mom was the only female that could play in that court. And so she was working out, you know, had her little weighted vest, jumping rope, like Rocky. And my dad was so <laughs> impressed. And that's how they met. 
Wow. I know. I think about your mom too, because I don't know what the culture, the basketball culture is in Colombia. Um, but especially in that moment for women, what, what do you think motivated her? What do you think, where do you think her talent came from? Did she have an older sibling that played or she just. I think it was the coach. Uh, she was very fit and very athletic. Um, and she was, I want to say at the time, the younger of her other siblings, I want to say another one maybe did some like swimming, but no, nobody really played the team sport, uh, maybe like volleyball or something. But mm -hmm. I think it was just the connection of finding the right coach who saw something in my mother and who kind of pushed her. And then that just be, it found a, a motivation and a drive that kind of mm -hmm. kept her going for years. Very cool. Because I think about my mom and she didn't have basketball as an, as an option in her high school. It was like cheerleading or tennis. Um, and yep. for you, you were born in 1982, correct? Correct. And for you to have a mom that uh, was an athlete, I just think that's pretty cool. Now it's common. It's common day right. thing, you know, but for, for us growing up, it wasn't necessarily the norm. Um, yeah. So obviously you had basketball in your genes. When would you say you started taking it kind of more seriously? Do you, do you remember um, like a moment where you were like, hey, I'm kind of good at this? Yeah. So obviously I was around the sport. My mom would bring me to practice um, from a very young age. She was instilling the importance of not having a dominant hand. So I would say when I first moved to the USA, that was I was seven. So around eight is when I got introduced to little dribblers. It's mm. like, you know, what you did, the little basketball um, activity. So back then, you know, at eight years old, kids are just learning how to dribble. I knew how to do a layup. I knew how to shoot both hands. So I was, uh, for me, that was what led me to say, this is what I want to do. Um, when I first moved to the USA, obviously kids can be cruel at times and it was difficult. I experienced some bullying, not knowing the language, uh, would get asked a million questions that I didn't know how to say yes or no to. Um, I would just shake my head or nod and would see the results of kids laughing. Um, hmm. I, for the first couple of months, just sat behind the teacher's desk with flashcards, learning the vocabulary. So when a couple of months into moving to the USA, the opportunity was given to start this little basketball league called Little Dribblers. I, it was very evident that as soon as I got on the basketball court, those kids that were making fun of me no longer did because now they were looking at me differently because I could do something way better than they could. <laughs> exactly. So from a young age, basketball became my identity. It was my way of if I can be good at it, no one's going to make fun of me. I'm going to be praised. Um, I'm going to be accepted. And then I'm also going to be able to do things that my family didn't get the opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so true yet sad that kids can be so cruel. Um, mm -hmm. But so, okay, so you were seven years old when you moved to the U.S. And then yep. obviously from there, you were in school, you did mm -hmm. high school. Um, yep. When when did the college recruiting process start for you? Um, so I got involved. Uh, I moved to Lubbock, Texas two years after we moved to the USA. And there, when I was in sixth grade, my sixth grade teacher said, do you want to be part of summer ball? And I said, absolutely. And I got involved with AAU at the age of 12. So from 12 years old, all into, I think my junior year, cause I didn't do nationals my senior year. I was every summer, my family invested their time, their money and their energy to have me go 
to a basketball tournament. So I became part of a club, or not a club, but a team called the West Texas Flyers. I think my when I was 14 years, um, and I think very quickly because we excelled, because we did well and made it to nationals, uh, we I, the recruiting started for me very young. I think we were able to, I, the first year we might've gotten second or third, and then we ended up as AU team winning. We were the first AU team to win three back-to-back national championships. You so, won three <laughs> back-to-back national championships? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. We were this little team from the North Panhandle and um, only had like nine players. We weren't very tall. We were just, we bonded. We were, uh, we just gelled very well and we kicked butt. And That's so incredible. because of that, the recruiting started, I would say almost right before my freshman, even my freshman year, I started to get letters because you couldn't really back then there was not a lot that could be done. So letters started to come in and then you started to get conversations and talk to people a little bit more personal. Um, it was either through letters or phone. There was no FaceTime, no social media back there. So when you say three back-to-back championships, are you talking at the same age level or was this like different age levels? So I think we wanted, um, I think we wanted our ninth, 10th and 11th. So when I was in ninth grade, 10th grade and 11th. Okay. So um, yeah. if that would have been maybe 16, 17, 18. 15, or 15, yep. 16, 15, 16, 17. Cause mm-hmm. the senior year we didn't, since we were all kind of committed to going to play somewhere Wow. That's so, yeah. Incredible. So I, I was very fortunate due to the investment and the time and the energy that my family allowed me to experience. I mean, I, we were in gyms every summer since I was in 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And so as a way to reward my younger sister for kind of putting up with that type of summer, every summer we would end up going to a Six Flags. <laughs> so that was, <laughs> that was what I did growing up. I summers to me was basketballs and gyms winning, getting better uh, with the hope of accomplishing dreams and then looking forward to that six flags trip at the end. Right. Um, And then this, this podcast is called another season in the books. So we're going to be talking about academics as well. Um, But for you, you know, coming to the States and not knowing the language as your first language, going through high school, having the, um, the demands of your high school team and your AAU team, how did you balance academics and athletics? Was that a hard balance for you? Did you feel like you had to sacrifice a lot, put in more work? Um, um, you know, I never really consider myself smart uh, because of the language barriers. And I think somehow I got by. Um, standardized tests were very difficult. And so thankfully I had enough I had a decent GPA in high school where I didn't need to get a high score on my standard, my SATs or ACTs, because those concepts of if this is to that and that is to that, that, that doesn't work in this brain. Um, I'm a slow processor to begin with. And when you add a language where, I mean, I learned at a young age how to speak, but I did not learn the grammar. So there is a lot that I missed and understood, still don't know in the English language that you just kind of get by. So I would say my priority was always, unfortunately, athletics, 
Um, I did what I could to get by. I got some support uh, with tutors, definitely more so in college. Mm-hmm. Um, but in high school, I think it was the support of teachers to make mm-hmm. sure I was doing what, is, what was needed to excel on the basketball court. Yeah, good for you. Um, and then, okay, so you were living in Texas, college comes. I'm assuming you started getting, like you said, seen by colleges. The recruiting process in general is overwhelming. Um, yep. And you were the first, I mean, your mom went through it maybe a little bit, but you probably were receiving a ton of mail every week um, yes. when they were able to start calling you. How did you kind of um, narrow it down to where you wanted to go? I, did you go on all five visits? I didn't. Um, I think I only went to three. So I had my goal from high school was, okay, next step is going to college, going to a national championship, winning a national championship, going pro. And so I wanted to, um, obviously the Texas schools were a priority. I lived in Lubbock. So Texas Tech was recruiting me very highly and as well as my other teammates from our AU team. And for a couple of years, we had kind of decided what if we just keep this team going and, and continue into our college years. And so it was almost like a unspoken, yeah, let's do it. And so Texas Tech was always in the picture. Then Texas came in and they were a big, big school uh, powerhouse. A lot of, they just had a lot of history even with their, their, their teams, their women's team. And so they were in as well, just because I lived in Texas. Um, when I started to get recruited by Stanford, I was like, heck yeah, the, you can't get a coach like this. This is, I mean, this is some of the best Tara Vanderbilt. You just, I mean, yeah. you, you know who she is. You, you, she was an Olympic coach. I mean, she has done so much for the game. So when I started to get recruiting, I was like, absolutely. I want to consider that. Um, I thought about, I had Duke there for a little bit. And those were kind of it for the beginning. Um, you know, it was always like, okay, where can I go to pursue my next dreams? And I think those schools gave me an opportunity to. And then it was just, I think the year before going into my senior year that uh, Purdue came into the equation. And so I hadn't really heard of Purdue, even though they had won it. <laughs> that year I think they wanted the year I was actually starting to get recruiting or after I can't remember but um I think what did it for me is the relationship so at that time it became evident who really wanted to have you as an athlete and who really wanted to get to know you and because Purdue wasn't in my radar before I think they came in with the approach especially the assistant coaches of wanting to get to know me as a person And that made a huge impact on me because I knew that regardless of where I would go, family was always important for me. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be involved with a team that I felt like I could have some support outside of basketball because I didn't know at the time what would happen with my family. If I went to Stanford or if I went to Duke, my family may may be left in Texas and I didn't know how I was going to essentially survive because I had been so close with my family. I mean, we left everything we had in Colombia, And so we became more than family. They were my extended family, my friends for many years. And so 
I knew that, that when Purdue came and they started to want to get to know me as a person that made that was very unique in the recruiting process. I hadn't experienced that with the other schools and they came in into my top five. Um, and then when we had the visits where they do come into your home, it, you know, you start to just feel and connect with personalities with where you feel like you can be a part of. And I don't think that I could have had a wrong choice. So for me, it was faith was important, what my family thought was important. And it was essentially that gut feeling. And so as the recruiting process went on, uh, I did narrow it down to Texas Tech, Texas, and Purdue. I think Duke had just signed another point guard and I wasn't trying to go to a team where I had to compete for a spot. <laughs> so I'm like, well, <laughs> that <laughs> next. Um, and I think with Stanford, I, I was intimidated by the academics piece. I knew that that was going to be a struggle for me. And as much as I respected the team and the coach, um, and I knew that they would offer a lot as far as basketball, I, I wasn't... I was too insecure to even consider. I didn't think I could make it academically. Mm -hmm. um, so then during the process, uh, things are going out. It works out where it was evident that um, Purdue was where I was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So kind of, okay. that's how it is. Very but it, it's interesting because, you know, I, I left it up to faith, my family and gut. And even though they came late into the equation, something just kept when I went to visit them, I just felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. I can't explain it. It wasn't nothing that was said or done. It was just, it felt right. And it wasn't until after I had gotten to Purdue that I realized um, our immigration status was not what we thought it had been. So when we initially came to the USA, we hired a lawyer. We went through the whole process of becoming residents. And because it's Texas, we just assume it takes a long time. <laughs> So when I am a senior and I have now, um, I was given the opportunity to play with the U.S. Uh, junior Olympic team right after the summer after I graduated high school, which was something that was amazing and such an honor. And I was so excited, but it was, it wasn't until they came into the equation and try to help move my immigration status that we can't, that we found out that our immigration documentation had never been filed. So our lawyer had actually ran with our money and um, the whole time we thought we were waiting to become residents because we were in Texas, but it had never been applied. So come to found out if, if I hadn't gone to Purdue, I probably more than likely wouldn't have been able to receive a scholarship elsewhere because most scholarships are state funded and Purdue was funded by alumni. So my scholarship was being paid by somebody else's kindness. Therefore, it allowed me to play my first year. Um, so wow. it's things like that where you know that for me, it was evident that God knew that ahead of time. He brought Purdue into the equation because any other university I would have gone to, I probably would have had to miss my first year until my immigration paperwork would have been updated. Wow. Mm -hmm. What yeah. a, yeah, for you guys to find that out 10 years later or whatever. I mean, yep. ugh. And it's just... Texas. So you're assuming it's a lot of immigrants in Texas. It, it's just right. time. Right. So it is unfortunate, but something that worked out for, I think, the best yeah. for my family and I. Well, I think that Purdue was a fabulous choice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I remember. So you were there from 
2000 to 2004. Correct. And I was at the University of Minnesota from 2004 to 2008. So I think we overlapped my freshman year, your senior year. Yep. Um, and Purdue was, like you said, a powerhouse. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> we did not enjoy playing against Purdue. And I was looking at the roster today. I think it was your junior year, but there were several other players on that roster that I clearly remember. I think one of them was Emily Hikes. Yep. Emily Hikes. <laughs> yeah. She was a post player. Yeah. I wouldn't yep. forget her. And yep. then I think, did you overlap with, um, oh man, now I'm forgetting her name, but she always wore a headband. Sharika Wright. Yep. Well, yes, her. And then there was a white, uh, she's a coach now. She's a college coach now. Uh, uh, yes. Um, she's at Purdue now. Uh, is that Purdue? Yeah. I think she just, um, she was like a tall three player, right? Yep. She, (laughs) I can't believe it. It's, um, Katie Gerald's. Katie Gerald's. There you go. Katie Gerald's. Yes. She's a head coach now. Purdue. At Purdue. Yep. Wow. I knew she was at, (laughs) she was at like a junior college not too long ago, I think. Yep. Verse of hire her. Oh my goodness. Um, I didn't know that. Well, Katie Gerald's, if you listen into this, <laughs> congratulations. Yep. And then Lindsay Wisdom Hilton, she was also with you guys. Correct. Mm-hmm. So you had a really good team and you, I believe you started every single game since your freshman year. I did. I wish that, um, there was, I got injured. Obviously it was a, a great honor coming in as a freshman and, and right off the back leading. I mean, I played with Katie Douglas um, Camille Cooper. I mean, we had, uh, Kelly. Yep. Kelly Camaro. Those are some great, great basketball players at Purdue. And it was an honor to be their point guard. Obviously very quickly. I had to adjust and learn a completely different game. Uh, Since playing AAU, I was a point guard, but I was also a scorer. (laughs) So that was not the role that I needed to come in as and so it it took a lot of adjustment and a lot of patience Um, but yeah I was very grateful that they that they needed a point guard and that I was able to fill that possession right off the back yeah that is a huge honor my freshman year was sitting on the bench waving the (laughs) towel (laughs) yeah 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 um it is I mean I think too you you get to a point in basketball where um as you grow and as you excel, you have certain expectations and goals set out for you. So coming in as a freshman, there I had, in my mind, I had worked hard all these years to have that opportunity to get the, the opportunity to play right away. Um, I, it worked out because they had just lost Stephanie White McCarthy and they needed a point guard and Yukari fix. So it, it worked out for me, but in my mind, it was almost like all you know is you have goals and you have dreams and this is just what you have to do to get them. And so going into college, there was no thought of, oh, I hope I get to start. It was, I, I have to start. <laughs> this is what I need to do in order to accomplish the next goal. So um, now looking back, of course, and, and being able to accomplish things basketball-wise, post-college but also being having some you you get humbled playing overseas and you get humbled not accomplishing some dreams 
that you had set out for. Looking back, I, I have a completely different perspective of it. Of course, I am now more grateful and more honored that I got that. At the time, I was very young, and it's like, it's what, it's what I need to do to get to where I want to go. Right. <laughs> so at that time, I didn't quite understand what was going on. And it's not until looking back when you're done with your career that you're like, wow, that was pretty amazing that I did get to yeah. start every game. Yeah. I mean, um, and did you know, did you always know what you wanted to study? I think you studied fitness. Yep. Health and fitness. No, no, I had no idea. I think that, um, unfortunately I was one of the stereotypical athletes of athlete was my identity. My sport was what I needed to do and academics came second. Mm -hmm. Now I wish I was able to have a redo and take my academics more seriously. But at the time it was always about basketball and it was always about what do I need to do to accomplish my next dreams and my next goals and the goals that my family has for me and the goals that my country has for me. And so that was, you know, back at the time, my perspective was very naive and very selfish and very immature because uh, it was always about what do I need to do to accomplish what I want, <laughs> not necessarily what the team needs or what it's best. Um, so, yes, I did choose a career. I'm not proud to say that I, I wish I could do it over and actually take advantage of free education, but I at that time, it was, what do I need to do to just get a degree to keep playing basketball? Yeah. Did you feel pressure from your country? Did you put that on yourself or? Definitely. Um, I think that, you know, you, you come from a country where all you hear is, oh, drugs and coffee. Um, I left my whole extended family, cousins, grandparents, aunts, and it was hard. And I think from a very young age, I put on I, this burden of I need to excel to make my family proud and I need to excel to make my country proud and to give Colombia something else other than drugs and alcohol, because that's all at the time that everybody knew Colombia to be unsafe. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, it's something that from a young age it, I carried, I don't know why, how, it, it was just a part of me um, to always make my country proud. I can understand um, that. I mean, I'm not from, you know, a smaller country or somewhere else, but I can, I can understand that. I wonder if you were the only Colombian player at the time, like in. Um, actually before me, there was uh, another basketball player. She was a post player from Colombia. Her name was Levi Torres and she actually got the opportunity to not only play here, I want to say she might have played at Florida or Florida State. I can't remember which one. It might have been Florida State. And she was the first Colombian female to get drafted. And so she played, I want to say, back then for Orlando. Was it Miracle? I can't remember which one it was. Or no, the Suns. I don't remember. There was a WNBA team in Miami, and she was the first Colombian player okay. to get drafted and play. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, well, after four years at Purdue, somebody else was drafted. Yes. In the second round, I think you were drafted, what, was it 23rd? I, I don't know. I just remember I, it was my sister's, little sister's birthday, and I'm, we're all looking at the TV, and I think I got, I drafted second round to the Detroit, and then quickly got a call to get traded to Phoenix Mercury. 
And it was your little sister's birthday. It was. I feel bad. We were. It was all about me and the TV as we <gasps> gave her the bike to enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but were you aware that like you did you assume you were going to be drafted? Were you invited to participate, or were you watching it at your house, or how did that all go down? So uh, there was a couple of people that got to go to the training camp. I was part of the training camp before they kind of prep you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was expecting to get drafted. I at that time had an agent and it was us. It was you watch it. They'll call you. You go from there. So mm-hmm. it was just us intimate. It was just my family. Obviously, we we're celebrating my little sister's birthday. We're watching it. We're excited. And then. I get the call from my agent that I'm getting traded to Phoenix Mercury, which actually worked out because I knew almost everybody that was going there. Um, obviously, my teammate Sharika Wright had also been drafted to go there. And then, but I grew up with AU playing against Diana Taurasi, um, playing, there was a couple of other players that got drafted that I'm, I'm on was my Diana uh, your Ashley same, Robinson. Was Diana your same graduating class? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. So I have known D since, <laughs> since back the AU days in eighth, ninth, 10th grade. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of grew up always competing against them. So it was always, it was a, an amazing opportunity to go there because it was a great team. Mm-hmm. And there was like five of us that ended up going there. Wow. So, and I said mm-hmm. Kathy Pondexter before, but she didn't play with you at nope. Purdue. She was at, she was on the Mercury. Yep. Yeah. So she wasn't there at the time. Um, I think there it was Sharika Wright, myself, um, Ashley Robinson, she played at Tennessee, Diana Taurasi, and Lindsay, uh, what is her name? She was from UC Thanks. Santa Barbara. No, she was um, 6'9". Hmm. Uh, okay. My brain, I can't remember <laughs> her last name, but yeah. So I was, I was very excited that I got traded to Phoenix. <laughs> And what did you feel the difference was between your college days to all of a sudden being in training camp with players of that caliber? Um, the work, I mean, you, I thought that I worked hard in college, but training camp kicked my butt. I mean, it was just even the warm up. The warm up I felt like was a, con- a conditioning workout. I, I, my body was not ready for that difference of, training and then having to compete it was very difficult um and i think it it was within the first couple i think i was at training camp for about three weeks almost a month and it was the last day that uh they made the cuts that i'm lacing up my shoes i'm excited i made the team i had just gotten hurt like a week before with an ankle minor ankle so i'm thinking i did it i was pumped um and i get the phone call right before we're going to do our pre pregame practice and I'm like a phone call who's calling me and it was the general manager saying thank you but at this point we don't really need a, a true point guard we have other players and so you will be cut and that's how I got cut so oh, man it was the day that I thought I had made it lacing up my shoes to go to pregame practice and I got a call a telephone call um, not a face-to-face thank you for coming Here's what you can do. We appreciate. No, it was a call. Thank you, but no, thank you. <laughs> wow. So that was that for me was very humbling and very difficult to process and to accept. 
um, because I was doing everything that I needed to accomplish the dreams that I had and I was not expecting to end that way. Um, and I think prior to that, there were very few things in my athletic career that I ever had to overcome because success became all I knew. I mean, from AU um, to Purdue, obviously we never did win a national championship at Purdue, but we were in the final four and lost by two my freshman year. So all I knew was to succeed. I didn't know what it was like to not to be told no mm -hmm. or to not be good enough or to be cut. I had never experienced that. So for me, that was very hard. And I would say something that took me many, many years to get over. I believe it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel that's just like heart wrenching, gut wrenching. I mean, for somebody who has so much passion for what they're doing and then to be told, via the phone when you have your shoes on and you're about ready to go to practice. Um, oof, yeah. Erica, I'm sorry, man. I know this was like, <laughs> what was this, 2008? Yeah. Yep. So we're talking like 14 years ago almost, but it's emotional even now. It is, it is. and it has uh, been many years of being able to tell that without crying. Um, <laughs> and it took many years to remember that my, to learn that my identity was not basketball. Um, because for many years, that's all I knew how to do. That's all I was good at. Yes. And when I no longer excel or had the opportunities that I expected of myself and others did, I did not know what to do at that age with all the loss and the failure. In my mind, what I perceived as failure. Mm -hmm. I'd like to touch on that um, in a couple minutes. But going back to your college days, a question that I wanted to ask you that I didn't ask before is, um, how would you explain to Europeans, to people in South America, um, all over the world, what the college experience is like? Like, what, what was so great about playing college basketball and about being a student athlete? Yep. Um, great question. Um, I think it's, so this is, me as an adult, almost 40 year old, looking back at that, <laughs> I don't necessarily think I would have the vocabulary or even understanding of the importance of it at the time. Uh -huh. I do think that being able to play college basketball, navigate academics, being part of a university that represents other sports, you are learning qualities and skills that you're going to carry on for the rest of your life. Uh, time management, hard work, dedication education, commitment, discipline, teamwork, really learning how to be unselfish as many of us are selfish, but you do, it is, you are in a group with other individuals who become so close to you that at times can feel like a family Sometimes it can feel like a dysfunctional family, but <laughs> it, it is family-like because you are 24, what feels like 24-7 with the same group of people growing, learning, um, accomplishing something, not only for your team, but for your school. And so I think it's an opportunity for others to, I think now because of, there's so many other opportunities to play basketball, I, I this isn't the only way 
to learn all these skills because I do think that all the countries are growing tremendously and are giving young females an opportunity to start basketball right away. And even though they might not have the opportunity to balance the academics and the sport, they do balance it because they are students who are playing with their club team. Um, so I, I think it, it's a, it's an opportunity to do something that you love while having the privilege of experiencing opportunities that you may never experience, mm -hmm. whether that be academically, whether that be traveling, whether that be giving back to the communities. I think that is one of the most beautiful things about college athletics is that their mind is how do we as a team represent a collective whole and how do we impact those around us? Um, mm -hmm. And that's what I appreciated about Purdue. It wasn't just about the, the wins and losses. It was, okay, how do, how do we as individuals continue to give back to the community, whether yeah. that be building houses, whether that be playing with kids, whether that's going, you know, giving back at banquets, there was a lot of things that it went outside. So it's almost like, I'd like to describe it, a pre-professional pre world, <laughs> and especially now, I mean, you're now getting paid. So it, you are experienced. It's just a different way of pre-professional world overseas. Mm -hmm. And you guys always had pretty good fans at Purdue, at least during yes. the four years I was there. Um, yep. Playing playing in the stadium, what was your stadium called? Mackey Arena. Mackey Arena. I always remember the Purdue fans getting kind of nasty and yelling stuff yes. and yelling at the yeah. bench. Um, yeah. But the, the college environment, like the spirit yes. of being at a university, playing a sport, um, there's just nothing like it. I mean, granted, yep. over here, overseas, there are teams that get a lot of fans. And actually, my team here in Movistar Estudiantes, we're getting more and more fans every year. And it's phenomenal. Yeah. But um, the college atmosphere is just a little different. Yep, absolutely. That's why I think it's... Um, I would say pre-professional to what we have view of professional, like not for females, but what we think of pre-professional for like an MBA or, or big time sports, because yeah. you are getting a glimpse of almost being like a professional athlete yeah. in that type of environment, just at a smaller degree. Um, and I'd like to point out one little thing that I did, I was not aware of, but you're, I think it was your senior year, you were awarded an award. Yep. <laughs> and I didn't even know the name of this award, but I looked it up mm -hmm. on Wikipedia and it, it yep. it's because of James Naismith's uh, daughter-in-law. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. um, so what is that award? Do you remember what it's called? Yep. So it's the Naismith um, Player of the Year, but it is for under uh, females who are under 5'8 and shorter. <laughs> so I'm five, six and a half. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I was given that, and it's not only just for your athletic talent, but also what you do in the community and your academics. So they, they award every year, um, they give that to one person, and I yeah. was chosen that in 2004. Five, six and a half, look at you. And everybody yeah. always assumes basketball players are tall, but there are, yep. I mean, I don't want to say plenty, but there are players out there that are not that tall, and they are getting it done. Yep. I mean, so. I remember they always would joke at me thinking I was a little midget. I'm like, no, I'm, I am not. I am <laughs> six and a half. 
Exactly. Um, okay, so when your dream of perhaps playing in the WNBA does not come to fruition, did you always, were you always aware of the overseas opportunities? Um, yes, that was always going to be the plan off season from the WNBA. Right. But at the time, it's almost like you're in this world where you don't necessarily understand it or need to know. You just know where you're going and you have the people around you to support you and help you get there. Part of why you have agents. And it was almost like, okay, this stinks. I was not expecting not to be in the WNBA. All right, let's call my agent. What do we do next? You know, it wasn't a decision that I had to make. It was a decision of like, now what? I still want to play in the WNBA. What do I do now? Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, let's get you overseas to play. So I did have a summer in between that, that I had to finish my, like an internship for my degree. And I chose to go to Columbia that summer and work at a basketball clinic in my hometown, uh, part of my health and fitness degree. Uh-huh. Um, I think I needed like 500 hours. So that's what I did instead of playing in the WNBA. I went to Columbia for the first time and got to be around family and got to help out kids learn how to play basketball. And they helped me learn a lot more other fundamentals that I didn't know. A lot of my two ball handling came because of that internship at the basketball academy there. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And now I know you played in Spain in Zamora and I know yep. you played in Sweden, but yep. fill in the gaps for me. How many different places did you play? Yep. In? So right after I got cut, I went to Colombia and then from Colombia, I went to Greece. So my first season was in Greece. I played in a very small club team in Castoria. It's like, literally, if we think of a peninsula, but it's surrounded by a lake. I lived in a small town there, maybe two, it's, it was gorgeous, maybe like two hours from Thessaloniki. Um, so that was my first season playing college or playing overseas. From there, I got the opportunity again to go to a training camp that following summer, but I had just broken my foot at the end of that season. So living in Greece and enjoying crepes and a lot of their wonderful pastries I put in a lot of pounds so I was not in shape to go to a second training camp but the opportunity presented itself Um, and I only lasted about a week in that training camp I think that was with the Connecticut Suns no yeah that was Connecticut and then um, that time I did get the opportunity to have their coach just look at me say hey here's what I see you need to work on, obviously you're coming from an injury. Here's, you know, I, I had the, what felt like a second redemption of a conversation I wish I would have had the first year. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I got the opportunity to play in Turkey. So I played in Turkey and then from Turkey, I played in Spain. Okay. And in your Spanish team, you actually played with Itana Cuevas. Yes. Oh, <laughs> one of my old time, old time favorite people in the whole wide world. I, I am still longing for the day that I can have a, a chance to meet up with her again. She is a <laughs> wonderful human being. It's so funny. I mean, such a small world because she was my teammate two years ago and I interviewed her for this podcast. And yep. when, I, when I looked up her roster of when she played in Zamora and I saw your name on the roster, I was, blo- I was just mind blown. Um, yes. Yeah. So what, I mean, tell me a little bit, what was your experience? That was just, you just played in Spain for one year or part of the year? One year. 
Yep. I, that is one of the things I deeply regret. Um, I think that at that time, my goal had been, okay, what do I need to do to get to another training camp? And what team do I need to play that helps me get closer to that? Mm-hmm. Uh, looking back, if I could do it all over again, I would go play in Samora a second, third, fourth year because I had such a great time there. Um, we didn't win. We, I think we might've gone to the semifinals. I can't remember, maybe even finals, but the people there, the team, I have never felt more like family than that team. I mean, it hands on for me was better than college was better than any other team I have ever wow. played in. That's so I kind words right there. Uh, Yep. Aitana was a big reason for us. She's a wonderful person, great teammate, will make you laugh at anything. Um, Just a a contagious personality. And so you put her, myself, and we had another teammate from England. I have some of my best memories playing in Spain, not only on the basketball court, but our adventures that we would do in Spain. It was amazing. Yeah. 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 That makes me smile. Um, but so oh, then after Zamora, where did you go after that? Um, I went to, so in the summers, I would go with the national team and play in Colombia every summer after that first, after getting cut from the WNBA. And I think right after Zamora, I went back to Colombia and in that summer I got hurt. Um, and so I might've had a year where I had to be off. And I had plantar fasciitis. I got it on both. Um, it was awful. <laughs> I, I have no words to exp- I think it was worse than my ACL surgery um, because there isn't a quick fix. There isn't a let's have a surgery and fix it. It is just the most prolonged injury where you literally have to be off. And it felt like I went through every shoe ever made to try to figure out what would work for my feet. So during that time, I took time off, um, got counseling, um, got connected to that. And then it wasn't until I think about a year and a half after that, I got an opportunity to go to Sweden. But when I went to Sweden, I got hurt again. (laughs) And so it was very evident that maybe I should be done. I played, I think, one more summer after that with Columbia. But I was like, all right, injuries are starting to call up. Uh, clearly this is now going on my second knee injury. I don't know how much I could do. So that was after Spain, I only played in Colombia and in Sweden. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I know we touched on this a little bit before, but so then that adjustment from being an athlete your whole life and identifying with being an athlete to then transitioning into a life where you don't have practice every day, you don't have somebody telling you what to do, you don't have team bus rides, you don't have this structured athlete life. Um, What was that transition like for you? Because it sounds like it was a little tough. Yes, Um, I, looking back, I think I was very spoiled and having success at a young age. And, but that worked against me because I didn't, know how to overcome mentally the challenges that started to happen after I got cut from the WNBA. After I got cut, I got cut a second time. I got injured. Um, there was some personal stuff that started to happen with extended family. My emotional 
Uh, I didn't know how to handle and navigate my personal life, what I perceived as my failures on the basketball court and my injuries um, and trying to figure out if I can't play the sport, who am I and what else am I good at? Mm-hmm. So I really struggled with that for many years. Um, obviously, when I did get injured and it did force me to not go to overseas, you're now living at home as a, you know, you're in your late 20s. It seems like everybody is moving in a direction of having a life outside of sport, and yet you're just beginning yours. Um, you don't quite know or feel like you can qualify. You don't have much job experience because all you've done is play basketball. So yes, athletics did give me some tools and skills, but personally, I felt like I was not equipped to enter any type of other job. I had never even waited tables. And so there was just this profound pain and insecurity and just regret and shame that I carried for many years, not being able to accomplish being in the WNBA, obviously. And then all, when I was playing with the national team of Columbia, there were some opportunities that we weren't able to do and we didn't have the support. Um, so we hosted the pre-Olympic tournament and we got two weeks as a team to prepare. So those are the little things that you, you almost get a glimpse of what you were expecting yourself to do and what you were hoping and have worked your whole life to accomplish. And yet things outside of your control are keeping you from doing those, whether it be an injury or um, not the time to really work with a team. So I, it was, it wasn't an easy transition. It did, it did take additional support. I did need a lot of therapy (laughs) Um, and learning a lot about myself began to alleviate a lot of the shame and the regret that I carried for not accomplishing a lot of the basketball dreams I had. So time, it took a lot of time, a lot of tears, a lot of support from therapy, family, and just trying to figure out what's next. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I applaud you for going through and doing the work because it's not easy. And um, I think now in today's world, seeing psychologists, sports psychologists, therapists is becoming more of the norm. Um, And it's not seen as something weird or strange. Um, And I think they can be very helpful. Um, And I think it's something a lot of athletes have to go through and I I will have to go through the same thing. And sometimes I look at athletes over here in Europe and I do have teammates that continue playing and they continue studying. They might not Mm -hmm. get their degree in four years, but they're taking classes a little bit year by year by year. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when they're 28, 30, they finally have their college degree and maybe their playing career is finally wrapping up and they're ready to start the next uh, transit, the next, you know, um, era the next chapter of their life. Mm -hmm. But sometimes for Americans or for other people that, you know, go overseas to play, you graduate in four years. And then if you play for a long time, you haven't been studying, you haven't been doing anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So you need to either continue educating yourself by taking classes or I don't know, thinking about what you want to do in the future. 
but it's important. And at the same time, it's, it's easy to kind of just get into this playing routine year after year, um, because it's what you know how to do and because you do it well, you know, who, who wouldn't continue doing something that they do well and that they get paid for. Correct. Yep. So when you're ready, you can call me now. <laughs> no, we, I think there is, there's my passion now, um, is to help athletes in that situation because we have a lot of privileges during college and we get spoiled and then we get sent to the world. Good luck, figure it out on your own. Um, and especially overseas, you go from one extreme to the other. You go from literally having everybody tell you when to eat, when to do study hall, when to practice, what community activity to then you're overseas. You don't necessarily have the same resources or services that you did and now you're having to do it on your own um, away from family and friends and support it is a challenge mm -hmm. but you're right some people really love that experience and i think you and i enjoyed our time overseas and it is almost like an existential crisis to some degree that once your sport is removed that all of us will have to experience and i think having people around you that can understand that and can come alongside you and not tell you what to do but offer opportunities when available is what i found the best way mm -hmm. to move past that and it's unique to all of us it's almost like you do experience grief it is part of a a loss that you are giving up of your identity of something that you've done for many years. And I attribute that as equally as the stages of grief that many people experience when a loved one dies or when you have a significant injury that changes your professional career. So um, I say that not to scare you, but I say that in preparation that it, it will be a challenge because you will never have the life that you did. Um, mm -hmm. and, and now you get to embark in finding out who you are apart from the sport. And that can take some time for some of us if we don't have the support available. Yeah. Um, but with you, I look at you and I admire because you are already starting the process of thinking outside of your sport which is why we're even doing this podcast. There is a passion that you have of telling people stories that is part of a gifting that you need to continue to do. Not, not every professional athlete that's overseas is doing podcasts or wanting to highlight the stories of other females. That is unique to your personality. And I think that is what's helping you start to think of what will be next, whether it's doing something similar than what you're doing. But you are already doing it. So you're a step ahead of some of us who really stop and then are like, now what, <laughs> what do I do? Because we never allowed ourselves to do anything outside of that sport while we were doing it. We were consumed by only our goals, only our, our dreams that we didn't explore other passions or begin to develop other gifts. Which is easy to do as a college athlete because you're just so consumed by you know, performing and by showing up and being there and dedicating yep. all your time to your sport. I mean, when I was in college, I never even thought about doing an internship. Yep. 
you know? Yep. Yeah. And uh, the majority- Because you had other, to, that's the only reason. <laughs> right, the majority of other college students, they do look at internships and things, but sports, we all, we do. We think it's the most important thing and this is what we have to do right now, but- And I think it's unfortunate. You know, I, I think our brains are fully developed at the age of 20. It's, they're fully developed after college basketball. So we are living this world with brains that are not fully developed and yet we're expected to make adult decisions without a fully developed brain. And so I think looking back, I can extend myself grace a little bit more for the things that I didn't do or that I should have done based on just that. We were navigating to the best of our ability with what we had with the brain capacity that we had mm -hmm. still not fully developed. So yeah. it's almost like I wish that college years could be postponed when you're a little bit mature, wiser, have the capacity to think a little bit more rationally other than you are, we are very young when we're experiencing that. Yeah, it is interesting because I remember thinking back, you know, when I think about my college years at that time, I thought I was older and I was mature and I was this college student athlete. But now that I'm 35 and I look at the kids that are on the college rosters and, you know, I see a game or two, I just think, wow, they're so young. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, I agree. <laughs> and on my professional teams over here, if there is a player on my team that's 20, 21, they are young. And mm -hmm. the, the perspective that other Spaniards have of those players are, oh, she's just a baby. And they have a lot to learn and a lot to grow, but that's because they're playing with women who are 35. Yes. Um, <laughs> but the college perspective is when you're a senior, you are, you know, grown. Yeah. Um, and yet we're not. And <laughs> we're not. <laughs> <laughs> we're so far from it. Yes. Well, and so right now in your day today, can I ask you what you do, what, you know, spending your time, your job, are you doing something related to health and fitness or just? Nope, nope? completely nothing related to health and fitness. So after um, going to Sweden, I hurt my knee, came back here and I was able to be involved uh, in helping with an organization, helping some athletes just navigate challenges outside of their sport. And it was very evident that as I helped, I realized um, some athletes are sharing some very personal, deep hurt. And a lot of things that I can't, I can't go further with them. I have to refer. Ethically, I felt honored that some of these athletes were sharing some things, especially in regards to mental health, but it became very evident that I am not the one equipped to kind of walk you through the next chapter with this topic or that topic. And so um, very quickly, I knew I need to go back to school. School was, grad school was never an option in college. I never, like I told you, I never consider myself smart enough. So I knew that this must be, there was something in me that was that I attributed to God is calling me to do something outside my sport. And I'm feeling like I'm getting these opportunities, but I'm not equipped to really help athletes with some of their mental health. I want to be that person. So convinced a friend at the time to drive with me to just figure out where I could go to grad school without having to take the GRE. Because like I told you, 
um, people who come from another country, standardized tests are not, it's, they're not easy. And yeah. it's, it's not fair that um, that is the standard to determine whether you're able to go to grad school or not. Right. So I found a school down in the South. At that time, it didn't need a GRE. And I went to school and I wanted to have the perspective of also having faith. So faith has always been important to me. And I wanted to be able to be in an atmosphere in grad school where I could have those conversations about, okay, where does faith fit in in mental health? Where does it fit in if someone's depressed or anxious or any type of other topic that I felt like a lot of us athletes struggle with? But at the time, you don't necessarily have the time or the space to identify because it is about the sport. It is about performance and it is about what do I need to help my team accomplish their goals and my goals. Mm -hmm. So I got my graduate uh, degree in uh, mental, clinical mental health counseling. And then thank you. Thank you. Bravo. It was thank you. I uh, not going to lie. I, it was not easy. It was a lot of crying and healing in my own types of personality. It gave me vocabulary to understand why I am rigid in certain ways and why certain things really upset me and they don't to other people. So I began to understand my own mental health from a completely different perspective, rather than being controlling, rather than being you know, stubborn, it, you just begin to have vocabulary for some ways that you are created, which was helpful for me. And so after that, it was in order for me to be able to give another athlete the experience I had in my personal journey in therapy, I need to be equipped. But in athletics, as you know, um, you we are put in a pedestal at times. We are giving resources that are top top notch. So I quickly, it was evident that in order for me to work with athletes, I needed to have crisis experience or have my doctorate. I wasn't ready to go from graduate student, graduate studies to get my PhD. No, thank you. I just survived graduate studies. I needed to just get a real job. And so after talking with many people, it was evident that yes, you need crisis work and that is the best way to get the experience before you are allowed to work with any athletes. Um, so I did, my partner and I started to look for jobs literally all the way from Virginia to Maine trying to get crisis positions. And we got this job opportunity here in Boston. We got it, there was one opening. We both interviewed for it and both got hired. So. We have been here in the Boston area as mobile crisis clinicians, getting the experience to one day help athletes. Okay. Well, so I asked you before, if you were working with health and fitness, okay, it's not necessarily fitness, how we think about lifting weights and being fit, but Correct. you are working in the health industry. I mean, this yes. is mental I health. Am, yep. I am considered a first responder. So have uh, been during this pandemic has been very challenging. Wow. Um, definitely it, this was pre telehealth. So, um, my job required me to do crisis evaluations, mental health crisis evaluations to young children all the way to, I think the oldest person I've done an evaluation is 101. 
Um, the youngest has been four or five. And so we're talking about any type of mental health crisis, emotional um, danger to themselves or others, uh, having psychosis, hallucination, substance use, alcoholism, you name it. So I am quickly getting the experience that everybody said I needed to, but now four years into this job in a pandemic, I am burned out and need just a, a new job and a new opportunity. So I am coming in, I think on June, um, it will be my last uh, time that I'll be working for this company. And then similar to you, it's going to be what's next. Uh, because I think, you know, I, as much as it has been everything I wanted and more, I have seen the DSM five come to life. I have experienced and had the the privilege and honor of meeting people at their most vulnerable, difficult moments of their life. And that has taught me tremendous things about mental health, about resilience, about people in their journey and not putting them in a box um, and learning that people's struggles, that they are more than their struggles. So I am forever grateful for this job, but I am forever ready. <laughs> for a new a new season and in, in doing something with mental health <laughs> wow so well, hey i applaud you for that too because i'm sure you helped a ton of people and during the pandemic yeah oof, i think we saw a lot and you know above all healthcare workers saw more than anybody else yeah um, so oh, wow i didn't know i didn't really know that that's what you had been up to because i think the last time i saw you was when we worked at Janet Carvin camp. I don't even know how many years ago. Yep, I was Shout still out trying to, Janet to figure Carvin. out. Yes, yes, <laughs> it was trying to figure out: Do I go to grad school? Do I keep playing basketball? So it was one of those things where I actually did start grad school and then got the opportunity to play again and ended up going back to Sweden and actually played in Sweden three years before coming back and finishing my graduate degree. So I was one of those people that started graduate school and ended in seven years because I took time to play. <laughs> yeah, well, the path is different for everybody. You know, everybody follows yep. their own their own path. Um, yep. Erica, thank you so much for sharing just so much about your journey. I, um, I've really enjoyed this. And I've got a couple questions here at okay. the end, just random right. questions, but um, what jersey number do you wear and why? I think I saw in college you were 33. Yep. 33. I loved um, that number because I think I, in one of my like sixth grade, not, no, it was in the first league I was here. So little dribblers when I'm eight and everybody is trying to figure out how to, you know, dribble. I think I scored 33 points one time and then it just became like, all right, that's my number. <laughs> and then of course you can't, you got to identify with Scottie Pippen after that. You're like, all right, Scottie Pippen had it. That's why. But okay. yeah, I think it was because at a young age, I scored 33 points. Uh, so it was one of those like, yeah, you were making fun of me. I scored 33 on you. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, and as you got older, would you say you had a bread and butter move or a favorite uh, situation on the court? Uh, I was all about the pick and roll going from right uh, wing coming into the paint. That mid jump, the mid range jump shot was what I loved. Uh-huh. A little pull-up. Okay. Yep. And I'm assuming you had some good post players to be setting you those screens over the years. When you played overseas, was there any food product that you would bring with you in your suitcase that you knew you were not going to be able to find? Um, baklava. 
What was that? Baklava. Really? Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> loved what? it. In oh, oh, I mean, I, at the time, uh, now you can find it in certain like stores, but I was, I loved Greek food. It's amazing. And the sweets, I'm, I'm a sweet person. I love anything sweets, but the baklava, I would always bring it home. <laughs> okay. I actually have a teammate this year who is from Greece and she's two years older than I am. So I wonder if she would remember you. I'll have to ask her, but her name, what is, is her name? Katerina Sotiriou. Hmm. Interesting. I think I played 2005. So that was the only season. Okay. But also when I played in Sweden, in Sweden, their chocolate is the best chocolate in the whole wide world, in my opinion. So dime chocolate bars, I would always bring from Sweden. Like I'm talking like suitcase and everybody, all my teammates would give me chocolate dimes because they knew how much I liked them. So you're talking, you would bring this stuff back with you to the States. Yes. Yes. Like tons of chocolate. Like I'm talking about (laughs) luggage because they were so good. Okay, so suitcases full of chocolate and full of baklava. Uh So when you were in the States before going overseas, was there anything from the States that you would bring with you? Uh, uh, Yes, I see see hot patches because we didn't have trainers. So it was always Tylenol, ibuprofen, I see hot patches, what kind of kept you going there. Um, food wise, I didn't, I don't think, I mean, I think I might've brought like gum as silly as that is. There's some American gum that you just get into and I would stock up on gum, but nothing really, nothing else. Okay. I mean, I, I love international food. So I wasn't a, when I went there, I enjoyed their food. So nothing I would bring from the States. Okay. Um, whether we're talking now, I don't know if you follow the WNBA, um, at all now, but do you have a favorite point guard, either past or present besides yourself, obviously? Yeah, no, no, no. Um, it's always been Subert. Come on. Su- well, first of all, before like Lindsay Whalen, come Minnesota, on, uh, <laughs> talk about hating to play Minnesota because of her. She was just, you, she was just so smooth. I remember I would always have to guard her and be like, dang, like, she just has this extra gear where she just goes by you, but she does it so smoothly. You don't even know how the heck she's going by you. So she and Sue Bird have always been by far my favorite point guards. Obviously, since then, there's been other young point guards that have come up. And, you know, UConn has always had some great point guards. Mm-hmm. But Lindsey Whalen and Sue Bird, by far, amazing. <laughs> I remember because I was a freshman, I know I was a senior in high school when Lindsay was a senior in college. So yeah. I would go, I would go to some of those games at Williams Arena, which I was going to ask you, what did you think about Williams Arena? Oh man, that, that was worse than playing at Mackey. <laughs> that arena was crazy. And then that it was all up. Elevated. And, yep. I, they had some incredible fans and we struggled to play well in those in that environment minnesota had incredible fans and we always got stuck with some not so good refs that always went on y'all side (laughs) it felt like like man but no i enjoyed um for sure playing against Lindsay whalen she was unbelievable yeah yeah those were some good years i mean because they had Lindsay at the point and then they had janelle mccarville at the post amazing yeah yeah it was fun to watch fun Mm -hmm. to watch um 
do you this is kind of a random question but can you remember any really difficult words that were like always hard for you to pronounce in english when you were growing up yes i couldn't say butterfly for the longest time and i couldn't say deodorant and i remember in yep butterfly and deodorant and um in high school it actually was our team's thing to make me say deodorant three times because I couldn't say it. And then it would get them laughing and relax. And that was a way of us before we went on the court. I, it was like our routine deodorant because I couldn't say it. That's funny. I wasn't expecting you to have an answer so quick, but. Oh yeah. Yeah, Deodorant (laughs) and butterfly couldn't. Uh Very difficult. And now, I mean, obviously I still, I've been in the USA since seven, eight years old. Obviously, I speak it fluently. I don't have much of an accent. There are certain words that if I don't use them, the accent does come out. Mm-hmm. And if you give me a word that I've never read, I will read it in Spanish. I, I do not know the grammar. I would not know how to combine and make the sounds that you need to know. I will read it word for word what, how I think you read it in Spanish. So yeah. Spanish it, is really easy like that. Yes. Yeah. And it makes me think that Spanish kids probably learn how to read and how to spell earlier maybe than Americans or English speaking kids because English is just so confusing. It just doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. But Spanish, you literally just sound out each letter and you can say the word. One sound, one letter. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And your last name, is your last name Colombian? No, No, my last name is uh, Czech. So my great-grandfather was from the Czech Republic, left uh, due to the war, went to France, met my great-grandmother, and immigrated to Colombia. Okay. My mom's mom, my grandmother, her last, her maiden name is Czech, and she was from, her, like, grandparents were from that area of the world and then came over to the U.S., I know I still have, I know that my extended family tells me there are relatives that live in the Czech Republic. So I one day want to definitely go there and meet them. Very cool. And um, any just last words of advice you would give to young players that are thinking about playing overseas, um, you know, what, what they should expect or what kind of mentality they should go with to be successful uh, in a different country? Yeah, I think um, overseas, it, it, it's not for everybody. I've seen great players start overseas and leave. I think that if you are able to have a humility that reminds you, you are going there to someone else's country to learn their culture, to experience their language, to not necessarily to let go of the fact that it will not be how it was at home. I think that if you approach it as a guest, as what this culture and team can offer you um, and what you can offer them in a way of, of, of a learner, I think some of us go there at a young age, like I did for many years, with the perspective of it's about me and what can I gain from this experience to help me meet my next goals. And I think that's where some of my biggest frustrations in unaccomplished dreams stem from was because I didn't have the capacity of saying, 
I am a guest in this country. I am a foreigner. And as a foreigner, I need to have humility and learn and be willing to try and be willing to grow, not just on the basketball court, but take the time to learn their language, take their time to try their food, be open to new experiences, um, and be willing to serve. I think that some of us after college, we were spoiled and with good reasons because we had a lot of things. We, we come from a lot of privileges back in the USA. And so if we can go as with the perspective of how can I love and serve um, my team, this club, whether it's helping coach, whether it's helping pick up the chairs after, because you know that we all got to put them up and put them back. It isn't like the USA where they magically appear and everybody has a role. Uh, be willing to do those little things for your club. I think it will, you will be surprised of how much you will learn from those experiences outside of the sport. Mm -hmm. um, when I went back a second time to play in Sweden, after many years of, <laughs> of having unaccomplished dreams and experiences that literally humble you, uh, I had the perspective for the first time that it wasn't about me going again to accomplish my goals. It was the having the gratitude of I get to play the sport that I love for a second time. And with that, the burdens, the expectations, the goals, they they left and I experienced some of my best basketball at the end of my career because it was about how do I just fully enjoy giving back um, in this club with this teammates, um, with the people around me and being willing to do whatever it takes to make that club grow. Mm -hmm. So humility and having a spirit of gratitude and a willingness to be open to new experiences, I think will go a far, a long way if you're wanting to have great experiences overseas. Ojalá pudiésemos tener esa mentalidad, la misma mentalidad que nos da cuando tenemos 35 años que cuando tenemos 25. Exacto, exacto. Yeah. Obviamente muchas veces nos toca eh, vivir dificultades, eh, rechazos, fracasos, mmm, lesiones, para tener un poquito más de madurez. Pero si yo hubiera tenido una persona que me hubiera dicho, mira, cuando vayas a un otro país, no es acerca de ti, eh, estés lista de tratar, de vivir, de reír, de ofrecer, de servir, de hacer lo que sea para ayudar a ese equipo, yo creo que antes hubiera vivido unos momentos mejores de lo que viví en los primeros años que jugué en baloncesto. Ya, yeah, totalmente de acuerdo. Uh -huh. Pero los años nos dan, pues, sabiduría, perspectiva uh -huh. y... Exacto. Bueno, es uh -huh. lo que hay. Hay que, hay que vivir el proceso entero, ¿verdad? Exacto. Pero algunas veces uno no sabe lo que no sabe. Y muchas personas eh, sí ven como tú me imagino que es, estás haciendo cosas diferentes de lo que hiciste cuando comenzaste a jugar, las otras jugadoras te ven. Entonces, ser el modelo y el ejemplo para otras personas de cómo amar y servir en diferentes maneras uh -huh. es suficiente. Uno no necesita hablarlo, pero lo, lo, uno lo hace y las otras personas lo ven y ya comienza un diferente perspectivo, una yeah. manera de vivir en, en, en otro país. Yeah. 
Well, I'm sorry to all the English listeners that maybe didn't catch the last uh, couple minutes, but I had to I had to get Erica speaking in Spanish. Claro. I remember back in uh, the Janet Carpenting camps, I think you, Hasai, and I, a couple times, we would do the Macarena and we would sing yes. it in Spanish. <laughs> yeah, I love and I, it. When I, you know, before I learned Spanish, I never knew even what they were saying in that song. And then finally mm-hmm. I learned Spanish and I was like, oh, okay, I actually understand this now. Yes. Um, well, and for you, I think it's something everybody that goes overseas should, if especially if you go back a second and third year, mm-hmm. should prioritize learning their language. Um, obviously, it, it speaks highly of who you are. The fact that you've been going to Spain, it also means it is a beautiful country with beautiful people that once you experience that, you don't want to not go back, um, but you did choose to learn the language and that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. You are joining in their culture without the expectation of having them cater to you. And sometimes, unfortunately, some players do go overseas with the expectation that the team should cater to them yeah. and it, it should be the other way around. It opens a lot of doors, um, mm-hmm. being able to speak the language and it just contributes yep. to the richness of your experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And your Spanish is very good. We got to work on those lifts because not everybody <laughs> speaks with the lisp. It's only in Spain. <laughs> gracias. <laughs> no, gracias. <laughs> well, except for the people in the Canary Islands, they speak more like uh, maybe South American Spanish. They don't say oh. th, and they use vosotros, which we don't, or they use ustedes, which we don't yep. really use ustedes in the peninsula. We use vosotros. Yeah, I vosotros we don't use in latin america i know so i know oh my and gosh we never really learned that in school either we always learned ustedes and we never mm-hmm. learned the vosotros part so when i came over here to spain i was like what <laughs> yep but oh my goodness yeah well thank you so much for having me thank you for taking the time we have been going for a while here so i really appreciate um the time you gave us today and um best of luck in this new adventure erica Thank you. Thank you. You too. Um, I think that you, it is, you continue to know from people who played overseas, watch you, uh, you're an inspiration. And the fact that you're not only playing, but you're doing things outside of your sport is inspiring. So thank you for giving people like me and others a space to share a little bit of our story. Well, because it's I'm, important. I know. I'm surprised I hadn't asked you earlier. Um, and I'm just so thankful that, you know, we still are able to connect and do this. And I, I learned a lot today about you and your story that I had never, never knew um, and have even that much more respect for you. So um, your you. story, it needs to be heard. And people, <laughs> you know, I think young players, hopefully they'll listen to this, some people eventually, but um, it just gives perspective. So I appreciate you, Erica. Absolutely. Thank you. And best of luck in your season. Till I turn, I give her a big old hug for me if you see her. I will. (laughs) And uh, Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Same to you. (laughs) Bye. All right. Take care. All right, everyone. That wraps it up for this week's episode on another season in the books. And for the year of 2021. I can hardly believe it. So, What did you think about Erica's story? Pretty awesome, huh? I love how it comes full circle. 
Here she is talking about how she doesn't view herself as being a quote-unquote smart person and how she wishes she would have studied something different in college. But in all honesty, someone who has as much social and emotional intelligence as Erica, who puts in the work, strives towards her goals, and has good intentions? I mean, I'd take that person any day over someone who gets a high score on a standardized test but lacks in all the other categories. She studied health and fitness, went on to get her master's, and has been working as a first responder, helping people through their mental health crises during a pandemic. I think I speak for everyone when I say, Erica, you are doing the work. Hats off to you and ole. Well, I hope you all enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, why not evaluate the show on Apple Podcasts with five stars? Your support means a lot and helps get the word out to future listeners. Enjoy the new year, stay healthy, and if you're in Spain like me, best of luck eating those 12 grapes tonight. (laughs) The chimes of the clock come fast, so chew quickly. Anyway, take care everyone. We'll catch you in 2022. Hasta luego!